Good morning. Our scripture lessons this morning are Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 6, one of the last of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our New Testament reading is Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, Jesus with her sons and kneeling before him she asked him for something and he said to her what do you want she said to him say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom Jesus answered you do not know what you're asking are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink they said to him we are able he said to them you will drink my cup But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant." And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We return to our study of 1 Peter, and we see Peter in the verses that we're going to read taking up these themes that Sarah just read to us from the prophet Isaiah and from Matthew's gospel. So would you turn, if you have Bibles or use the ones in the rack in front of you, or you may watch the screen. Um, We're going to start reading from chapter two of First Peter, beginning with verse 18, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. First Peter, 
chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. Remember that he's begun this section in verse 13 by telling us to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And last week we saw him uh, in ways that uh, I certainly admitted that I found painful enumerating what that looks like because it calls us to treat people that we don't much care for and whose leadership we may not desire, to treat them with honor and respect and to treat all people with honor and respect. And if there's a word that our culture desperately needs and that I desperately need because I can get too caught up in all of that, it's that this is how God wants his children to live, to live differently than the rest of the world. So he's working this out now and beginning in verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of the Lord. If we seek to understand these verses without constantly holding in mind that this is written to people whom God has made new and is making new by the work of his spirit within them, then this can very quickly simply become another religious burden placed upon us one which, if we seek to keep it and think we've done well, might turn us into insufferable Pharisees, but is more likely probably to show us how far we fall from the picture here, and so leave us in perpetual grief and misery. This is for people who have been made new. The, the uh, lovely text of that uh, song that we heard during the offertory uh, or during the offering, the offertory, uh, was stating all of that. I'd, he has done it. I don't know what he's doing, but I know what he's done. And this battle that I'm fighting, he's already won. So that is precisely the way in which we must approach this text in order to appreciate it and learn from it and embrace it. The reason that I think we so desperately need texts like this, and particularly within American evangelicalism right now, is because 
there is a tremendous fear that we are losing our power, losing our ascendancy, our numbers are dwindling, our, our brand is being widely rejected because it's become merged with politics in a way which the Lord never wants any of his people to be branded or his truth to be branded. So this is a call to us in whatever place we find ourselves, whether in cultural ascendancy and positions of power or cultural decline and positions considered subservient by the culture. He starts by addressing slaves, calling them to be obedient to their masters, to show respect to their masters, not just to the good ones who take good care of them, but to those that are unjust. And twice he says, this is a gracious thing. Now, it, it certainly isn't going to feel like a gracious thing, but he's not just addressing slaves. He's addressing all of us. Because over and over again, the scripture tells us that rightly understood our possession and it's most important for people in leadership to remember this, is that we are servants of God and we are servants of one another. And so he's using that call to servants as an entree to speak to all of us and uses the supreme example of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells all of us that we are to follow in his steps and this is where again I want to make sure that we hear this rightly the great dangers to us are on either side of the road there's a, a, a desperate <laughs> cavern on either side of this road of following Jesus his way one is the road of legalism that says, in order to be God's or in order to be the real thing, I have to do these things. And it breeds either constant guilt or a false pride. The ditch on the other side is the ditch of despair, which often leads to, the big word is antinomianism. Nomos is the Greek word for law. Uh, nomianism would be legalism, antinomianism, anti-law, anti-legalism, and that is where the conservative Presbyterian Church in America has been for quite a while. There was a huge reaction to the legalism that many of us grew up under, and so the grace message came out and then didn't know where to stop. And ends up with Christian leaders saying, don't talk to me about behavior, don't talk to me about what I'm supposed to do or how I'm supposed to live. I'm, I'm under grace, not under law. Jesus always said, follow me. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I lead them in and out. Paul always having declared the gospel said, therefore, and then gave us the second half of the letter which said, if you're the real thing, this is how you're going to start living. So we are not saved by following Jesus. But there's no salvation for those who refuse to follow him because if you refuse to follow him, it means you don't really believe him. You really think your way is better. You want the good stuff promised, but you really think that if you want a joyful, meaningful life, you need to take a different path, which is the definition of an unbeliever, not of a believer. 
and churches are packed with people claiming salvation because they prayed a prayer, but who care nothing about following Jesus. And this is a call to you and me, and as I tell you, I'm always preaching to myself, I can swing wildly between legalism and antinomianism all in one day. And I need this constant call to follow Jesus. And so he tells us in verse 21, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So what does that look like in these verses that we've read? He shows us four ways in which Jesus was representing to us God's will and what it looks like to be fully human. This was God's call to Israel. Israel was to stand in the midst of humanity to show humanity what the kingdom of God looks like. Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's call to Israel. And in doing so, he's not only the perfect Israelite, he's the perfect human who shows us both who God is, because we're made in God's image and likeness. And he shows us who we are meant to be, who his spirit is making us if we're his, and who at last we one day will be perfectly conformed to. So that's where we're going. And very quickly, the four ways are simply starting at verse 21. They follow right through to verse, through verse 25. And the first is that Jesus is God's suffering servant. Now he talks about servants who suffer, who suffer for doing right. He said, if you suffer for doing wrong, that's remedial. God can use it to correct you and get you back on track, but it's not a gracious thing, it's, it's a painful thing. But he said, if you suffer while doing right, that's the gracious thing. If you suffer while you're following Jesus, whether it's because you're following or simply as you're following him. And, and the danger is thinking, if I just get everything right and am pleasing to the Lord, he's going to make certain that I don't suffer. My family's gonna look like Lake Wobegon, you know, where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. That's how it's gonna be if I just follow Jesus. God's gonna bless me that way here. No, not necessarily. Because you and I are called to walk this life in all the places where everybody else walks it and to go through the hurts and the suffering and to be that gracious thing. Jesus Christ is described here as the fulfillment of that beautiful passage in Isaiah, where he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement that brought us peace was placed on him with his wounds we are healed. This whole text is an exposition of that, all of these parts. But the suffering servant, that's how Israel spoke of the Isaiah text. They said this is describing the suffering servant. And if you ask a, a rabbi, as I've talked to friends of mine that were rabbis, they will say, it's not talking about any individual, it's the whole people of Israel. And there's a sense in which the people of Israel corporately certainly suffered terribly for being God's people and continue to. 
but it's, I, I love the story. Uh, Francis Schaeffer's wife, Ida, who, uh, if you ever try to read Schaeffer and find him confusing, um, read Ida. She was a much better writer, much clearer thinker. Um, and she, in a autobiographical work, talked about um, having Jewish neighbors that were good friends who invited her over, and they knew that she and her husband were religious somehow, and so they asked, you know, tell, tell us what it is that you're thinking. Well, their sons were all there, had been invited to dinner. So she said she asked for their Tanakh, the, the, what we call the Old Testament, and she opened to this passage of Isaiah. And she simply read it. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that gives us peace was on him. With his stripes we are healed. And she turned and looked at the sons and said, who do you think this is speaking about? And they immediately said, oh, that sounds like Jesus. Uh, I don't know if, if any of you have followed the move of this, uh, is it Hirsan Ali, um, fascinating public figure, uh, a woman from Somalia who moved to the Netherlands and became a public figure there and spoke against radical Islam that she was from and was actually, uh, a fatwa was put on her. And then she, she totally rejected theism, God, because of her experience. And so she has been one of the more famous new atheists speaking in the public square. Uh, and Christopher Hitchings, before his death, called her sort of the star of it all. And just the past few weeks, uh, she's been getting all the news for having become a Christian and having written, I think she wrote in the Atlantic, or, but she wrote of, of her conversion. And I heard her interviewed and it's very interesting. Someone said, how, how did this happen? <laughs> how could this happen? And she said, I've been really in a hard place. Of course, she's been a public figure taking shots from everyone. And she said, I was seeing a therapist and was pouring out my heart. My therapist finally said, you just sound as though you have a huge empty place inside of you that can only be filled spiritually somehow. And so she said, but I don't believe in God. And she said, well, I'd invite you to, to start sitting down and writing. If there were a God, what would you hope that that God were? And she said, I began every night writing what the perfect God would look like until I realized I'm describing Jesus. This one who came as our Lord did not come and accept the crown of glory. That's in the future. He rules and reigns, but not here in its fullness. He showed us what it means to walk this world in brokenness in weakness, born not on silk sheets in Rome, but in a stable, in the backside of the universe. And he's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. This is who God is. These people that you despise, I sit and eat with them because my Father loves them. I've come to seek and save the lost. That's God. This suffering servant calls us to be willing to walk through the hardest places so that we can show people 
in some measure by his spirit's power, never as Jesus did, but hopefully on a trajectory increasingly toward that. What it means to be willing to suffer as a gracious thing. It may be, you know, some of you have lost children in this past year. And those who know that you're a Christian are watching to see how you grieve. And if it's any different than the way other people grieve. Some of us have experienced huge hard things. And people want to see. You know, the people who've helped me most in my life are not those who say, oh, I was terribly sick and then I prayed and God took it away. Or, you know, I, I was looking for a parking place and I just prayed. And there it was. Somebody pulled. I mean, I just always want to, you know, <laughs> gag me with a spoon. The people who have really ministered to me are the people who've walked through the hardest places, the place that I most fear having to go to. And in the midst of it, they've said, I don't know what he's doing, but I know what he's done. I know who my redeemer is. I know that one day I will see him face to face. And in that, you join the Lord as a suffering servant. And it is to the Lord a gracious thing. The second is as God's perfect sacrifice. And I don't need to go much in this. We speak of this often. But I will say this. There's always been a strong theological push against the idea of Jesus having had to suffer sacrificially in our place. When I was coming along and studying, there, there was still that resonance within uh, most of your mainline churches that it was an example that Jesus just came and died to show us that God loves you enough for his son to suffer like this. But there was no meaning ascribed to the suffering itself. The problem is that the word that is used in the New Testament for what he did for us, a word often translated propitiation or um, sacrifice of atonement, is a translation of the Old Testament word hilasterion, which uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament word kippur for Yom Kippur. It was the sacrifice offered for atonement for the people's sins. And Roger Nicole used to use the illustration for us at Gordon-Conwell. Tim Keller picked it up and used it effectively in debates. Uh, Roger Nicole used to say to us, um, imagine, he'd say, brother Wood, or brother so-and-so, imagine if uh, we were walking on campus and I turned to you and a car was coming and I said, I want you to know this is how much I loved you. And I stepped out in front of the car and it killed me. Would you say what a marvelous expression of love? Or would you say what a complete idiot? Why in the world? I mean, it's meaningless. But he said, if you were ready to be hit by the car and I put my body in the way and took the hit, that is what shows the love. He was the perfect sacrifice and he's telling us that when we are willing to stand with people and stand, even take the hit, and lots of great illustrations, but I haven't time for them now, but I mean, whenever you are willing to take the hit for somebody else out of love for them, you are joining in that. Paul, when we studied Colossians, you remember, he said, I fulfill in my flesh that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his people. Not because 
there's anything we can add to the atoning work, but it is our willingness to suffer with Christ and to take the hit, which carries the gospel to others and makes them think, maybe this is real. Thirdly, we see that he's the wounded healer. That second came from verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And this third, by his wounds you have been healed. That beautiful expression, the title of one of Nouwen's books, Wounded Healer. That's the most effective kind of healer there is. Someone who shares your wound. It is the person who goes to you and says, you know, I went through that same thing or I'm going through it. And let me tell you how Christ has been faithful to me in the midst of it and let me warn you of some of the deep hurts that you may not have experienced, but I'll walk through it with you. You've got a wounded healer there with you. By his wounds, we are healed. By our wounds, we are able to be his agents in healing others. Some of you know that, that uh, oft-told story of Father Damien, a Belgian priest who in the 1860s was sent to Hawaii as a missionary and he discovered that the island of, uh, of I think it was Malawi, was, um, no, not, I forget the name of the island, but one of the islands was being set aside as a leper colony and all lepers would be sent there and no one would go to care for them. And so he said, I will go. And he spent the rest of his life serving as doctor, nurse, priest, friend, caregiver to the lepers on that island. And after 20 years there, he discovered that he had leprosy. And the revival took place on that island when in 1880, he stood up in the chapel and said, fellow lepers, their hearts opened because this man who's cared for us is now one of us. Jesus gave the picture of a wounded healer. And that again is why when we fall into the American idea that we will win the culture and win the world if we're the most successful, the most dazzling, the most powerful, all of that, that is the temptation that Satan offered Jesus on the mountain. And he rejected it. And it's simply walking through the broken places of life and being willing even to be wounded healers finally he's the faithful shepherd he says you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul and that's always the picture in scripture of the lord he is israel's shepherd the lord is my shepherd i shall not want jesus said i'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep peter later in this letter peter who was a fisherman nonetheless says Elders, as your fellow shepherds, this is how we need to live and how we need to shepherd. Sheep are apparently pretty dumb animals and it's not easy to be a shepherd. It's costly. You have to live out there with them. But we're called to be his shepherds, to shepherd whomever he's placed in your life, that network of friends, those children of yours, those siblings, Perhaps people who don't want to be shepherded, but who need to see someone walking before them the path that Jesus took. I'm out of time. But go back and read this. Look at this. 
I mean, this is a call to you and to me to join him. He set an example that we should follow in his steps as people willing for God's sake and for the sake of those he's entrusted to us to follow Jesus. Father, help us in the silence to respond to whatever your spirit would say to us through your word. Please stand with us.